our next presenter, which I would like to introduce to you, is Pastor Dreen Samasundram. Dreen is a lecturer and chaplain at Avondale College on the Sydney campus. She has been there for, I think, 13 years. And uh, I think two of those years you were actually a lecturer here at Avondale College in the theology department. Prior to coming to Australia, Dreen worked for 14 years in pastoral ministry in Great Britain. Um, pastor of multicultural, provincial and city churches. And in 1995 launched women's ministry in the South England Conference. She's married to Martin and to Daniel, her own Lion's Den experience. No, I didn't say that, did I? Um, Dreen achieved a PhD in, uh, I haven't got the year, 2007, which was a thesis on gender-inclusive theological education, which sounds fascinating. Um, so, would you welcome Pastor Dream? I feel incredibly privileged to be representing women across South, um, South England, oh, I'm getting confused now, South Pacific Division. <laughs> I've just recently heard this morning from Kylie that 40 women are now pastors in Papua New Guinea. When did that happen? That's incredible. And so I stand here this morning representing the South Pacific Division. Got a few important questions I want to pose this morning. And I don't want to touch the ordination issue or debate. So here's the first one. Why would God call women to ministry if it were not biblical? What are the implications when God calls women to ministry? And how do female pastors minister to a rejecting church? Let me share my story. I was one of those special babies that were prayed for, you know the type. My mother couldn't get pregnant and she went um, for a week of prayer and she prayed and she said, and Lord, if I have a child, I will dedicate this child back to you. So I grew up with this story. I hated the story. I just couldn't take it that, you know, was my life destined? What was going to become of my life? Did I have a choice with this amazing story? Well, at the age of 16, I was at a youth camp, and it was in Wales, and I was walking along a cliff, and the whole point of, of it was we were going to walk down the cliff down to the beach. But there was a girl behind me who slipped, and what had happened was she pushed me off this pretty steep cliff, and I fell. I did two somersaults, and I landed. And it was pretty, you know, pretty deep fall that I had. I remember waking up and sort of being a bit shaky and I, I, and I, and I remember I didn't, have a, I didn't have a scratch, I didn't have a bruise, I didn't even have a broken bone. And I just knew from that point that I had been spared and, and from that point on I really wanted to make sure that my life was worth something and I knew that God had spared me that day. 
Well, circumstances unraveled and I found myself at the end of the first year at Newbold um, enrolling or changing my course and wanting to study theology. I had a wonderful time in, with my lecturers. I was surrounded with really supportive and loving people who really believed in me. And my peers were wonderful. In fact, when I would go into my Greek class, I was the only girl, and they would always say, oh, here comes the rose amongst the thorns. And, you know, they're still that way today when I see them when I go back to England. So I had a really positive experience. Um, when I finished theology and when I finished Newbold College, I somehow landed this amazing job as the first youth pastor for the New Gallery Church. And this was in 1988, so you can imagine. <laughs> it was quite a while ago. And I just began to really love ministry. But I have to tell you something. I never wanted to become a pastor. Okay, I just have to make that statement now. You see, the fact was I'd never ever seen a female in that role before, and I knew that women weren't ministers, so I, I'm not even sure why I finished the course in theology, but here I was, offered this amazing job as an intern at the New Gallery, and I just loved it. I couldn't believe that I was getting paid to do something I just loved. And I remember um, I had the most loving church senior pastor David Cox who really mentored me well he told me dream there are no mistakes you can do whatever you want to do um, and just learn from the things that didn't work so he really just gave me a free hand and he really empowered me and I just flew because I loved what I was doing he was a great man and I was really sheltered from the church politics and I had such a loving supportive church it was just wonderful and I was there for almost two years, and I was, as interns do, you get moved around, and it was my turn to be moved into some pretty conservative churches in London. And I remember at a camp meeting, walking along um, the beach, we were at the beach in um, Dorset, and I remember taking this long walk and just thinking a bit about my life. And I looked up and it was very grey. It looked as if the sky was going to rain and thunder any moment. And I walked and I had some music blaring in my ears. And as I was walking, I, f I heard God say to me, I can't talk to you with that music blaring. Well, the music was actually Michael Jackson. So, <laughs> so I turned the music down and I said, okay, what do you want to say, God? And so we continued walking. And he told me to look up. And now this is a story I, I, I don't share very often. I think the first time I shared it was this time last year at a Woman in the Word conference because it's a very personal story. It's a story that has kept me going, really. So I was walking along this cliff and God said to me, look up. So I looked up and, you know, this grey mass of sky. And as I looked up, I saw this red line and I said, yeah, God, I can see that red line. And God said, look, Dreen, you have to make a choice. I have great paths all planned for you. And it'll take you to places you've never even dreamed of. But you have to choose it. And so here I am looking at the sky with this incredible red line. And I'm thinking, well, it's sunset. Perhaps an aeroplane did that. I don't know. Where did that, you know, where did this line come from? 
And then, you know, God said, I need you to feel how powerful I am. And then suddenly there was all this wind and rain and I just got quite scared because I had never experienced God in a powerful way. And then God said, you're going to go through some really challenging and difficult times, but I promise to be with you. And as I looked, I saw this little tiny cloud and there was no way I could explain that. And God said to me, as you go through your challenges, I want you to remember that I will be with you every step of the way. So that was the point when I accepted God's call. I knew it would be difficult times and perhaps my church would be difficult. Perhaps I would never get married. And I was young, I was 23 at the time. Perhaps I would never have kids. There were no set paths at all. But I knew that God had me covered. And I chose that day to accept God's call for ministry and to totally trust him. Well, the next few years were incredibly tough. I went to very conservative churches where my presence challenged cultural, theological and political perspectives. Um, at that time, the conference now wanted me to sign a contract saying I was a Bible worker and of course I refused to do that because I had been an intern and I had got a master's by then. Uh, and somehow in all the, in the mechanisms of the church, the uh, secretary of the conference must have made a mistake because he wrote intern and that caused a whole lot of problems for what happened but I stood my ground and I said well you know I'm not going to sign that to be a bible worker so they had to come up with a new name so in those days there was no policies no support um, just great opposition and the conference was silent I remember going to my first church board meeting and the church very politely, the church board, asked me to leave as they discussed whether or not they wanted to work with me as a woman. Well, you can imagine outside, I was cursing God. <laughs> and said, how could you take me here? You know, if I'm trusting you, how could you do this to me? But I remembered my call and I tried to trust him. I remember hurtful church members who would pick up their families and make such a noise to pull them out as I was getting up to preach. I remember elders plotting against me, totally rejecting me as their minister. So I had to think. I was sitting in the front pew for about almost two months. The church didn't want me on the pulpit. They didn't want me to do anything. So I had to, you know, how am I going to survive this? Totally humiliated. And so I decided, okay, I'll just go around the churches and I'll preach. So I did. I went around the whole of South England. I became quite famous, actually. <laughs> I volunteered a day at Emmaus House, the Roman Catholic place, which I loved. It was for abused women and women who just needed to talk. And I started, they knew who I was, what I was doing, but I started washing up pots and I kind of worked my way up. And... I came to a very beautiful place where I was actually leading Bible groups for these interdenominational women, which I felt a privilege. I sat on art councils, I did incredible prison ministries, and I went to study because my church, churches didn't really want me. 
Well, it was ironic because my churches began to realize that they had a famous woman and she was never in her own church to preach. And so things began to change. And not only that, but I was, a very, I was very good at, at chairing a board. And so that's some of those things that really um, helped me in my ministry. So things began to change. One day I woke up. I had been four years in ministry. And I thought to myself, I'm defeating the whole object of being a woman in ministry because I've been trained as a male. I've been trained by male senior lovely ministers and I'm just, you know, doing the stuff that I've been taught to do. When I went to study, I went to King's College and I was exposed um, to a unit that was called Feminism in Philosophy and Theology by an incredible lady called Dr. Grace Jansen. My world turned upside down because I was hearing theories and concepts and models that I'd never heard of before. And I felt quite robbed that Newbold hadn't shared this to me. And as a woman, it made so much sense. So I remember waking up one morning and deciding, okay, we're going to minister as a woman. And I put my own model together of what I needed to do, how I needed to look. So I threw away all my pinstripe suits and my briefcase and my file of facts in those days. And I started to, you know, be a woman in ministry. I wanted to elevate the status of women in my church. I wanted to teach an accurate history and biblical perspective. And I wanted to encourage an inclusive language in worship services. My poor conservative churches got cutting-edge sermons that were culturally and politically relevant and correct. But things slowly began to change, and I, was, I found myself absolutely enjoying ministry, and I finally got my own district of churches. And I remember the first day I went to Cambridge Church, you know, head down, I didn't know what I was going to expect. And as I looked up at the church and they welcomed me, they were all smiling. They were so happy that they were having a female that was going to be their minister. I wish I had time to tell you about the amazing stories of of what I saw God doing in my community. I wish I had time to tell you all the transformative things that happened. And, And one of my churches in Peterborough, they were really small, but I tell you what, they had the biggest ideas and God always blessed. I don't have time to tell you those stories, but we did, God and I did amazing things together and my concept of ministry really expanded and I loved it. You see, ministry's in my blood. My great, great, great grandfather was the first person in India to become a Christian. He was rejected by his family. He sent his children, Robert and Grace, to the Wesley Mission in Madras to train as pastors. The Wesley Mission, now I'm talking about the 18th century here, the Wesley Mission commissioned Robert and his sister joined him to South Africa to set up churches. Now, there's a very famous community in Durban called the Aden Christian Community. There is a, a hospital that was run by William Booth or set up by him. There is a whole range of um, schools which, my, which this great, great, great uncle of, of grandfather of mine, Robert, set up. And on the church plaque it says, Robert Ebenezer Somersandrum, 
founder and pioneer. Isn't that amazing? I only discovered that a few years ago. So ministries in my blood. I have a brother who's working in, um, as a minister in America, and I have my mother at the age of 70. She was actually one of the first women to be ordained as an elder. She set up, she's doing church planting. 70. And 10 years have gone, and she called Martin and I up to say, guess what, the conference is going to buy us a building and we'll have a church. So ministries in my blood, I love it. I have tried over the years to honour God's call and to be loyal to him. It has been a challenging journey, but God has certainly been with me every step of the way. I've worked for my church, the Seventh-day Adventist Church, now for over 27 years, 14 years in England where I was born as the first pastor to be employed by the South England Conference in 1988, and as I said, eventually have my own district of churches. And for the past 13 years, I've had the privilege of working with Avondale as a lecturer and chaplain in the Faculty of Arts, Nursing and Theology. And I'd like to thank women in ministry who actually brought me over many, many years ago. Um, I got a call from Steve Thompson one day um, saying, would I like to come and work in the Faculty of Theology because they're having women that are just getting their placements and they've never seen a female before and we would really like you to teach from a female perspective. So you can imagine, I really felt for their journey because I knew what they were going to go through and I felt like I had to be there with them. So I said, sure. And women in ministry worked with Avondale and, and they, so it was, it was great. So when I came to Avondale, I was teaching, I was doing all kinds of wonderful, interesting things and trying to support women as best I could. But I also was continuing my study. And of course, it was my journey. I wanted to do something to do with clergy women and, and their experiences. And so Avondale became my primary stakeholder to my project. Of course, I had Newbold before, but since I was in Australia, we changed and I worked with Avondale. And my area of research was to explore the lived experiences of female pastors. What were their stories? What were their narratives? Were their stories similar to mine? What are their challenges? How do they view theology? How do they view their ministerial training? And from my research, I developed a gender-inclusive model in theological education. Now, you've got a book here, which it will be launched this afternoon. Um, I have a chapter in here. Um, I'll tell you where it is, just so that you can, you can read it. It's important. <laughs> chapter 11. And I'm looking at life worlds of Seventh-day Adventist pastors. Um, and in this book, or in this chapter, I should say, I ask the question, how do women function and serve behind such a controversial backdrop? And it's a question that we as an organisation perhaps have neglected or haven't bothered to even think about, let alone ask. And so I try to address this, and I, I lead you into a journey of looking at how women function in terms of their call, theological education, and ministry challenge. Let me just share a few things in case you don't get to that chapter. <laughs> women who are called by God, they're all very strong calls. All the women that I interviewed had strong calls, and they have to be strong. And many of the women, as you've heard already from two of our speakers, they understand the journey is long. They don't have set paths. 
They may forfeit getting married or having kids, but they choose it. And for a woman to, do, to accept God's call, it's actually massive. It's an internal struggle that goes on, the ambivalence about it all. Um, and here I'm talking about identity issues. You know, when a man accepts a call, that's great, there's a set path. But for women, there is no set path. And how do you accept a call where a church doesn't validate that call? And that's really difficult. So I, I'd like you to, um, to read some of their quotes, but I want to read you one of my favorite ones. This pastor says, when it came to telling people that I was what I was going to do, I avoided it until I could do so no more. The reason for this was that I felt that I had a personality that didn't quite fit the role of a pastor. I feared ridicule and the constant questioning. I told my dad what I was going to do. He laughed and he wouldn't believe me. He thought that it was a joke until he finally realized I was serious. This did nothing for my self-confidence. Just, you know, really, really, I want you to, when you read this, to, to go through the journey with these women and, and understand how they construct meaning, how they um, put their reality together and, and just journey with them. Uh, I can say a lot more there, but I'll leave it for you to read. I also looked at theological education. Of course, theological education for me was something that was really important because it really changed me when I went to King's College and so it was really interesting that many of the women, on the one hand, absolutely loved Avondale, and these are women that, I, that, that came to Avondale College. They loved their um, academic program. They absolutely loved all the lecturers. They thought they were incredibly supportive, but there was a real dissonance. On one hand, they said it was the best thing ever, and then here I've got some quotes. My whole world fell apart. It was the best and worst years of my life. And what I discovered, which of course I already knew, that there is a real um, issue with epistemology, dominant epistemology, because we know that theological education is very much male-directed. And so here I've got a quote where this particular lady says, in theological education, there's a whole new way of thinking, a language that is quite foreign to me. I feel left out. I, had, I never had a female lecture in theology, so it was very much a male approach. I think it has been a shock to the theology training system to have women coming into theology, theological training. They don't know how to include us, and they don't know what to do with women. I had difficulty because of my female view of theology. We need to expand our view of theology. Look at it from a female's point of view. Lecturers need to learn and strive for a more gender inclusiveness in language, models in ministry, and feminist theology. Dare I say that word? So here's a really interesting quote. But what I also found, every single woman that I interviewed said that theological education was like a box. This is the box, you have to fit in it or get out. Now they acknowledge that this happens to men too, but in a very different way, because when women have to get into the box, it's about who they are, it's about their gender. Um, so for example, and there's a very complicated process that you can read about, where women actually have to um, deconstruct themselves, they then have to construct themselves to fit into the box, and when they leave their theological education, they then are in a position to reconstruct. So it's a very conflicting, painful process that goes on. And so I'll give you a couple of quotes. 
I was trained as a middle-aged married man with 2.5 children. Well, that pretty much says it all. I hated that the program was geared for someone who obviously wasn't me. And I've got a very mature woman here that says, theological education process is designed for one and all, but it really doesn't help with adapting to a man's world as a woman. All the education was exceptional, but doesn't even look at the practicalities of working in ministry as a woman. It still teaches ministry within the context of masculinity, and I don't fault them for that, because that is what you find when you graduate and enter the field. It is very much a man's world, run in a man's way, and there is just no room for a different perspective, a different view of the world. At the end of each interview, I ask the women to, to describe for me or give me an image of, of how they depicted their theological education. And this is, these were their responses. An empty treasure chest. A beautiful flower behind bars. A huge empty field. The twin towers collapsing. The building of a house that was never completed. A stiff upper lip. My whole world fell apart, being roped in and tamed, and walking on hot coals gagged. Disturbing images, aren't they? So this is my passion. This is why I put a gender-inclusive model together for theological education, not just for, for women, but certainly for men too. I could go on. And then the last point that I make in my chapter, I look at ministry challenges. And I'll just read one. It says, my biggest surprise was the amount of rejection that I would encounter in just trying to do ministry. I always knew that, they, that they, I would be rejected, but the amount that I had personally encountered is beyond what I expected. To be considered by a handful of church members to be doing the devil's work is an exceptionally difficult thing to deal with. And what do I do with such a mindset? And then I asked this lady in the interview, but how do you feel about your role as a pastor? And she powerfully and emotively responds, I feel I am not one. I feel that I'm being paid to do the role, but can't because it is simply a battle in every part of ministry. It is a battle to chair meetings because the church members don't think that a female should have such a position of authority. It is a battle to visit because some of them want nothing to do with you because they think that you are going against what the Bible says, and therefore you are doing the devil's work. It is a battle to lead out in communion, because you have to be an elder appointed in the local church, and when the church doesn't appoint elders, it is impossible. It is even a battle just to get up and preach. I don't feel like a pastor, because as some of my church members continually remind me, I am not ordained and women shouldn't have that kind of authority in the church and therefore cannot be given the title. Even the title minister is something that they consider shouldn't be given to women. How does one fulfill their role when what they are called is uncertain? Sorry, I didn't want to end it on a sad note, but these are the realities. And it's times like this when we can actually come together. Thank you, Women in Ministry, for putting this on, where we can begin to dialogue. Um, the future is looking better, but it's not perfect. We still have a long way to go. And again, in this chapter, I talk about there are so many things that need to be put in place before we even come to the point of commissioning 
Oh, well, we know that ordaining is not biblical now, but I didn't say that. <laughs> so, so I've got a question. I've got, I asked, let me just read this beautiful quote. Now, Elaine Graham concludes in her book, Transforming Practice, that almost 20 years ago, clergy women in the wider Christian church context have made significant contributions to the life and communities where women minister. She writes, for the first time, clergy women are articulating their vision. This is 25 years ago. Reclaiming their history and bringing a theology of women's experience. Women's lived experiences encompasses considerations that impact pastoral ministry, reflections on feminine religious experience and its distinctive nature, biblical interpretation, questions of inclusive language, feminist reconstruction of care, growth, human identity, relatedness and community, and their implications for pastoral practice. So I asked the question in the beginning, how do female pastors minister and serve a rejecting church. They do it because they're called. As long as God calls women to ministry, female pastors are here to stay. There are no set paths, the challenges are great, but God, I know, is with us. We serve with a woman's touch to extend God's kingdom. Thank you.